wonderful people. How's it going, everybody? How y'all doing? What's up? Is that good? Is that good for the, the people at home? Go ahead and adjust. Uh, just, a, just a little bit of an adjustment. All right. And I have to get rid of my face. Otherwise, I'll only look at me. How's everybody doing? You had a good week? Nate says, hey. Hi, Nate. General says, hey, oh, Marie. Hello. How's it going? Ducks Infinity. How are you? Welcome to the stream. Rachel. Hi, Rachel. I love you. I hope you're having a good week. Uh, Ducks Infinity says, so excited. Will this be in radio play format? It will not. Um, I'm going to finish out this book as we've been doing it. And then book five, which I think we're going to be finishing up four here, uh, like next week or the week after. Um, I think with book five, I'd love to start doing some of that radio play stuff, but, uh, thank you. Thank you for, uh, thank you for like, you know, staying tuned in and, you know, being around for some of the extra stuff. I think it's pretty exciting because I'm, uh, I'm. I'm excited for the new possibilities. I got the soundboard. I so I was working with uh, my, I, I was working with OBS. That's the software I use to to broadcast. Um, and I I worked up kind of a an okay soundboard system with that. But the one big issue is I can't stop all the sounds unless I go in and individually find it and mute it. So I got a different soundboard. I'm using that for right now. Um, I, I worked with it a little bit off stream. Um, my hope is to continue. Um, and uh, my my Tuesday streams are going to be uh, they're going to be radio play essentially right from the start. And um, like I said, I think I'm going to move into radio play kind of thing for this, uh, starting with book five. It's going to take some getting used to. Um, unfortunately, with a new soundboard, I can't. Um, it doesn't have. I, I have to go into the individual file in order to adjust the individual volume. So I'm going to have to do a lot of balancing out before I get started. I can't do as much live balancing as I could if I just did the soundboard right in OBS. So there's some behind the scenes technical stuff if you guys are interested. Um, uh, Luke says, "Man, another week gone by already." Indeed. Yes, indeed. Um, good news. I got a 999 out of 1,000 on my four-week adolescent lit course. Fantastic. 99.9% <laughs> um, uh, is... That's not a bad number. There's nobody who wouldn't be proud of that. Uh, maybe I can have some other fun again now. True. It's always nice to it's always nice to come off of those big long projects where you have just been devoting so much attention to it that you really haven't had time for much else and suddenly have the opportunity to just breathe. <laughs> Ashlyn, hello. How's it going? Rachel, I love you so much. I hope you have a good night. Wherever wherever you may be going, whatever you may be doing, I hope it's go I hope it goes well. General says, I went on a cat rescue mission on Monday. We saved four out of seventy. Whoa. Okay, so seventy is I mean I four out of like sixteen is where I was expecting that to go. Uh seven I mean, even in a hoarder situation, like twenty would be a, a huge number, but seventy cats. Atticus, Linus, Wally, and Hugo. <laughs> Fantastic. Well done. Well done. I'm not I won't tell you that they're gonna appreciate it because they're not gonna know how, but you know. You know what you did. 
I think at some level they do they know as well um depending on how old they are sometimes it's just this is what they've known and uh sometimes you know they're too young to kind of realize but I think some of them get it Ashlyn says good to be in a stream for the first time in a while it's been it's been a pretty wild schedule with the streams I know um luckily like I said I'm home again so we should be back on course um how's my voice sounding anybody with uh, a little bit of audio experience uh knows that voice balancing is is kind of tough but i don't want to be blown out that's the most important thing if i'm a little quiet that's okay i can actually turn that up without reducing the quality um but i am curious to know uh also i did go and uh check out that rainbow roll series Rowell? Rowell? Um, I haven't read anything yet, but uh, I familiarized myself with it. It does look interesting. What's everybody else been up to? I mean, Luke, you've been very, very, very busy. Um, what? Uh, <laughs> I was going to ask you, like, what was the one out of a thousand? But it doesn't make any sense to dwell on that kind of stuff. So let's skip right past that. What was your favorite thing um, that you covered in that adolescent lit course, Luke? I'm curious to know. General says the kittens were super young, not even a month old, and they had never been held or even touched by a human before. Uh, the place where I work now is also a cat rescue, and one of the big things that I am learning about cats is how important socialization is, um, how important it is to be with them. Uh, General, I gotcha. Makes sense now. Um, how important it is to be with them and just get them used to human presence so that they're not wigging out so they don't get standoffish um it's an important process and one that's honestly a lot of fun because if you get them while they're kittens they'll they'll hiss at you they'll meow at you but they don't tend to strike out they're just they're just unsure of what your deal is um yeah they're, they're just unsure about how to interact with a creature that's so many times bigger than they are with intentions they don't necessarily understand uh but uh yeah they'll they'll they don't really strike out and so you can get them you can pick them up you can hold them and very quickly they realize like oh okay this is kind of nice uh especially if um it's from a, a new litter you know if they if they haven't come from a situation with abuse or if they have come from a situation where you know they were outside fending for themselves for a while it can be a little different but uh if you catch a, a fresh batch fresh batch of kitties that's the stuff right there luke says one point off the quiz about the technicalities of using blackboard Ugh. <laughs> and your favorite thing was adolescent lit is not limited to writing it can be any kind of literature tech-based talk-based podcasts uh talk-based like podcast insta poetry etc i do think that's interesting you know we are getting um honestly i think i think it's been like this for a long time um and you you have obviously done a lot more studying about this than i have but uh i think that when we look at, at least when we look back at writing we we consider certain things to be literature sure um but when we look at the way that people were in history we always look at everything you know one of my favorite stories is um one of the more ancient uh, uh examples of writing is a grocery list essentially um and yeah just the 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 information that one can learn about a culture comes, I think, you know, partially from, you know, what we would consider, you know, formatted literature and so much of it comes from 
a wild variety of other things. Insta poetry. Have not heard that term before, but I like it. Ashley, you did make it in time. How's it going? All right. And Ashling, I have been looking at those drawings. I'm very excited uh, that you have uh, taken it upon yourself to throw in a little artwork. I appreciate it. The rest of you won't be seeing it until, let's see, I think the earliest one that I've seen so far is book six, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Luke says Lincoln's speeches are some of the best literature, right? Native American stories as drawings or oral tradition. Indeed. Yes, I think, uh, yeah, obviously there's, there's a lot to learn that goes beyond just things that happen in chapter one, two, three, four, five form. You know what I mean? And of course now with, you know, podcasts and, and, uh, uh all the different things happening with movies and television, so, so much of our culture right now happens not in written form. Um, and I do wonder how that's going to be. I, I always think about that because as file sizes or file sizes, uh, file types change all the time and different codecs for video and everything, eventually, you know, like who, who, how many of you out there have the ability right now, if I were to hand you a cassette tape, if I were to hand you a cassette tape and say, play this. How many of you could find the technology to go do that in your house right now? Or a VHS. I think that one's a little bit more common. Um, but, you know, there are the, the ways that we read some of these files are disappearing over time. And I think it's fascinating how historians are going to look back at some of these things um, before they existed in file types that we can read now. Hmm that but i think you guys probably get what i'm saying you know there's 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 information that's out there um in old video form already on the internet or if you go you know back to cassette back to records um i think records have sort of a retro appeal but even that you know it's not a it's not a commonly used way to lay down information and of course Ashling says, the tape, yes. VHS, no. Okay, interesting. Not how I expected that to go. Uh, Nate says, cassette player is my footrest under my desk right now. I remember that. I, uh, I used that footrest. That was a couple of weeks ago. All right. Should we do some reading today? What do you guys think about that? We should do some reading so that someday, far, far in the future, after there are no more books, all the books are gone. But uh, somebody gets access to some ancient server and decodes how to how to find their way into it. They're gonna find us talking about cats. <laughs> Ashlyn says, "I'm watching Stranger Things and watching the stream at the same time." Well, I will try not to distract. Go, Robin. All right. Got to close out of some extra windows here. Okay. Um, let me do a quick review, huh? as I usually do. Um, if you're watching the VOD and not the stream right now, go ahead and skip until you see chapter art. But for those of you watching at home right now, in the previous two chapters, we had the dream and the pensive. Now, um, in the dream, that was our first chapter from last week, uh, we were reeling from this, this discovery that uh, Mr. Crouch was found in the woods right? 
um, by Harry and Victor Crumb. Harry leaves Crumb with uh, um, Mr. Crouch. And then when he comes back with uh, Dumbledore, Crouch is gone. He has stunned uh, uh, Victor Crumb and... Karkaroff could not be angrier about this. He thinks it's sabotage. He thinks that, you know, even the judges might be in on this. Um, it's a real mess. There's a lot of discussion about, you know, who the perpetrator is, you know? Um, people think it might be Crumb himself. People think it might be Crouch's fault. They think it might be, um, you know, uh, somebody like uh, Madame Maxime. It's a strange time. Lots of, lots of suspicion going around. Um, Harry gets another letter from Sirius. Uh, it's... It's not encouraging. Uh, it, it is uh, an admonishment for going off into the woods with Victor Crumb. Sirius does not consider this to be a smart move. Uh, it's in, it, obviously, you know, Harry's, Harry's safety is very important to Sirius, of course. Um, and hold on a sec. Very important to Sirius, of course. And, uh, Wandering off into the woods with, you know, someone that could be considered an opponent, certainly uh, a student of someone that is uh, a suspicious individual, Karkaroff once being a Death Eater. Um, not not Harry's smartest move, but Harry doesn't agree. Uh, I think um, Harry and Hermione both sort of understand that the value of this Triwizard Tournament is to form relationships with people at other schools. Um, of course, not everybody has had their names put into an incredibly dangerous tournament. Harry falls asleep in Trelawney's class, and in the midst of it, he has a vision. He has a vision of a huge snake. There's a cold, high-pitched voice uh, speaking to Wormtail, something about murder. Wormtail's being tortured. But it seems that Harry Potter, as Harry is hearing in his own dream, Harry Potter is still uh, up for grabs, I'll just say. Now, uh, Harry wakes up uh, screaming and clutching his scar because it's causing him incredible pain. Um, and, of course, he's in the middle of class and students all around him are looking at him like, what's, what's, what's going on with this guy? What's his deal? Uh, they've always known that he was kind of an uh, an interesting individual, but you know, if if somebody sort of collapsed in class, you know, screaming and and shouting, especially about you know the the darkest wizard that anyone knows about, uh, that would be a weird day. That'd be a weird day in class. You there wouldn't be much other discussion at lunch, you know. All right, uh, the next chapter was chapter thirty, the pensive, and in this chapter uh, we get a lot of something that. I mean, Luke, I'm sure you're familiar with this term, but some of you might not be. This is exposition. Um, this is uh, setting up some information that we need to know um, essentially about the the context in which some of these things are happening. Uh, we Harry gets a chance to dive into a, a memory. We, we later learn that it's a, a, uh, a basin full of memories. Um, and... Uh, he gets a chance to sit in on various trials of Death Eaters, including Karkaroff, including um, uh, Ludo Bagman, and uh, finally, uh, but, uh, I should I should clarify, Death Eaters or people who 
associated with Death Eaters. Ludo Bagman seems... Uh, nobody is really convinced he was a Death Eater, just that he passed them some information. Karkaroff was certainly a Death Eater, uh, but he was able to cut a deal with Mr. Crouch uh, by giving up the names of other Death Eaters, among which was Snape. Uh, Dumbledore is still vouching for Snape. It's hard to tell why. Yeah, Luke says, my favorite part of any story, finding out what the world is and what the rules are. Yeah, it's uh, exposition is uh, important, especially, especially in fiction, uh, especially in genre fiction. Um, you know, understanding what, how, what is magic like in this world, you know? Because uh, I think um, we've got a certain schema for magic, and I'll talk about schema some other time, but uh, we've got a, a certain understanding, just a basic understanding of what magical ability would be like. You know what I mean? Everyone, when, when, you, when you have a character pick up a wand, you imagine that they can change shape or they can, uh, you know, shoot firebolts or they can do things like that. Um, you don't imagine that they will be limited to like warming up tea in a teacup. You think they'll probably be stronger than that. And you also don't think they're going to be able to lift up a mountain and move it and, and put it back down somewhere. You imagine it'll be less than that. So you've got an idea of where it's going to fall, but you don't know what is required. Um, it's, it's especially important in sci-fi as well. Um, just understanding what, how the world works. Like, you know, like Luke says, what the rules are. Anyway. Um, so we learn about Karkaroff. We learn about uh, Ludo Bagman. And finally, um, there's a, a pale boy. His trial is disturbing. Um, the participants, uh, I should say the, the accused, are a group of Death Eaters, including um, a woman with wild hair, uh, a Lestrange, and uh, it turns out the pale boy is none other than Crouch's own son. Crouch disowns him publicly in court and sends him to Azkaban. And uh, at that point, uh, Dumbledore comes in, finds Harry using his pensive, and uh, they they have a, a discussion about you know the 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 turning tides in the magical world, including uh, one very important thing, uh, Neville Longbottom's parents. They were Orders, Order being a uh, essentially magical police. Uh, they hunt dark wizards. And uh, how Neville Longbottom's parents were actually tortured by Death Eaters and uh, so badly so that they don't recognize Neville anymore. We'll talk about that a little bit in the chapter, but um, I agree with Harry's upcoming sentiment that that is possibly the most awful experience I could imagine as a child. <laughs> All right. Ashton says, just looked at my bookshelf for the art for book five, Half-Blood Prince. Um, book six is Half-Blood Prince. Book five is Order of the Phoenix. We'll figure it out. We'll, we'll get it sorted, huh? All right. Let's do some reading. Let's do some reading, shall we? As always, if you guys have anything to say, go ahead and put it in chat. I'd love to talk about it. Let us commence. Chapter 31. 
the third task. Dumbledore reckons that you know who's getting stronger as well, Ron whispered. Everything Harry had seen in the pensive, nearly everything Dumbledore had told and shown him afterward, he had now shared with Ron and Hermione. And, of course, with Sirius, to whom Harry had sent an owl the moment he had left Dumbledore's office. Harry, Ron, and Hermione sat up late in the common room once again that night, talking it all over until Harry's mind was reeling, until he understood what Dumbledore had meant about a head becoming so full of thoughts that it would have been a relief to siphon them off. Ron stared into the common room fire. Harry thought he saw Ron shiver slightly, even though the evening was warm. And he trusts Snape, Ron said. He really trusts Snape, even though he knows that he was a Death Eater. Yes, said Harry. Hermione had not spoken for ten minutes. She was sitting with her forehead in her hands, staring at her knees. Harry thought she, too, looked as though she could have done with a pensive. Rita Skeeter, she muttered finally. How can you be worrying about her now? said Ron, in utter disbelief. I'm not worrying about her, Hermione said to her knees. I'm just thinking. Do you remember what she said to me in the Three Broomsticks? I know things about Ludo Bagman that would make your hair curl. This is what she meant, isn't it? She reported his trial. She knew he'd passed information to the Death Eaters, and Winky too, remember? Ludo Bagman's a bad wizard. Mr. Crouch would have been furious he got off. He would have talked about it at home. Yeah, but Bagman didn't pass information on purpose, did he? Hermione shrugged. And Fudge reckons that Madame Maxime attacked Crouch, Ron said, turning back to Harry. Yeah, said Harry, but he's only saying that because Crouch disappeared near the Beaubaton carriage. We never thought of her, did we? said Ron slowly. Mind you, she definitely got giant blood and she doesn't want to admit it. Of course she doesn't, said Hermione sharply, looking up. Look what happened to Hagrid when Rita found out about his mother. Look at Fudge jumping to conclusions about her because she's part giant. Who needs that sort of prejudice? I'd probably say I've got big bones too if I knew what I'd get for telling the truth. Hermione looked at her watch. Oh, we haven't done any practicing, she said, looking shocked. We were going to do the impediment curse. We'll have to really get down to it tomorrow. Come on, Harry, you need to get some sleep. Harry and Ron went slowly upstairs to their dormitory. As Harry pulled on his pajamas, he looked over at Neville's bed. True to his word to Dumbledore, he had not told Ron Hermione about Neville's parents. As Harry took off his glasses and climbed into his four-poster, he imagined how it must feel to have parents still living but unable to recognize you. He often got sympathy from strangers for being an orphan, but as he listened to Neville's snores, he thought that Neville deserved it more than he did. Lying in the darkness, Harry felt a rush of anger and hate toward the people who had tortured Mr. and Mrs. Longbottom. He remembered the jeers of the crowd as Crouch's son and his companions had been dragged from the court by the Dementors. He understood how they had how he understood how they had felt. Then he remembered the milk-white face of the screaming boy, 
and realized with a jolt that he had died a year later. It was Voldemort, Harry thought, staring up at the canopy of his bed in the darkness. It all came back to Voldemort. He was the one who had torn these families apart, who had ruined all these lives. Ashling spotted the donut. Michaela, welcome. How's it going? Ron and Hermione were supposed to be studying for their exams, which would finish on the day of the third task, but they were putting most of their efforts into helping Harry prepare. Don't worry about it, Hermione said shortly when Harry pointed out to them that he said... Oh, Hermione said shortly when Harry pointed this out to them and said he didn't mind practicing on his own for a while. At least we'll get top marks in Defense Against the Dark Arts. We'd never have found out about all these hexes in class. It's good training for when all of us are orders, said Ron excitedly, attempting the impediment curse on a wasp that had buzzed into the room and making it stop dead in midair. I realize Ron got a little Scottish there. It is really difficult to enunciate the word orors. A-U-R-O-R-S. Oof. It's hard to make that heard within the sentence. Too many vowels. Too many vowels, too many soft consonants. The mood in the castle as they entered June became excited and tense again. Everyone was looking forward to the third task, which would take place a week before the end of term. Harry was practicing hexes at every available moment. He felt more confident about this task than any of the others. Difficult and dangerous, though it would undoubtedly be, Moody was right. Harry had managed to find his way past monstrous creatures and enchanted barriers before, and this time he had some notice, some chance to prepare himself for what lay ahead. Tired of walking in on Harry, Hermione, and Ron all over the school, Professor McGonagall had given them permission to use the empty Transfiguration classroom at lunchtimes. Harry had soon mastered the Impediment Curse, a spell to slow down and obstruct attackers, the Reductor Curse, which would enable him to blast solid objects out of his way, and the Four-Point Spell, a useful discovery of Hermione's that would make his wand point due north, therefore enabling him to check whether he was going in the right direction within the maze. He was still having trouble with the Shield Charm, though. This was supposed to cast a temporary invisible wall around himself that deflected minor curses. Hermione managed to shatter it with a well-placed Jelly Legs Jink, Jink. <laughs> Well-placed jelly legs, Jinx. And Harry wobbled around the room for ten minutes afterward before she had looked up the counter Jinx. You're doing really well, though, Hermione said encouragingly, looking down her list and crossing off those spells they had already learned. Some of these are bound to come in handy. Come and look at this, said Ron, who was standing by the window. He was staring down at the grounds. He was staring down onto the grounds. What's Malfoy doing? Harry and Hermione went to see. Malfoy, Crab, and Goyle were standing in the shadow of a tree below. Crab and Goyle seemed to be keeping a lookout. Both were smirking. Malfoy was holding his hand up to his mouth and speaking into it. It looks like he's using a walkie-talkie, said Harry curiously. He can't be, said Hermione. I've told you. Those sorts of things don't work around Hogwarts. Come on, Harry, she added briskly, turning away from the window and moving back into the middle of the room. 
Let's try that shield charm again. Sirius was sending daily owls now. Like Hermione, he seemed to want to concentrate on getting Harry through the last task before they concerned themselves with anything else. He reminded Harry in every letter that whatever might be going on outside the walls of Hogwarts was not Harry's responsibility, nor was it within his power to influence it. If Voldemort really is getting stronger again, he wrote, my priority is to ensure your safety. He cannot hope to lay hands on you while you are under Dumbledore's protection, but all the same, take no risks. Concentrate on getting through that maze safely, and then we can turn our attention to other matters. Harry's nerves mounted as June the 24th grew closer. They were not as bad as those he had felt before the first and second tasks. For first thing, he was confident that this time he had done everything in his power to prepare for the task. For another, this was the final hurdle, and however well or badly he did, the tournament would at last be over, which would be an enormous relief. Breakfast was a very noisy affair at the Gryffindor table in the morning of the third task. The post owls appeared, bringing Harry a good luck card from Sirius. It was only a piece of parchment, folded over and bearing a muddy paw on its front. But Harry appreciated it all the same. A screech owl arrived for Hermione, carrying her morning copy of the Daily Prophet as usual. She unfolded the paper, glanced at the front page, and spat out a mouthful of pumpkin juice all over it. What? said Harry and Ron together, staring at her. Nothing? said Hermione quickly, trying to shove the paper out of sight, but Ron grabbed it. He stared at the headline and said, No way. Not today. Ah, old cow! What? said Harry. Rita Skeeter again? No, said Ron, and just like Hermione, attempted to push the paper out of sight. It's about me, isn't it? said Harry. No, said Ron in an entirely unconvincing tone. But before Harry could demand to see the paper, Draco Malfoy shouted across the great hall from the Slytherin table. Hey, Potter! Potter! How's your head? Are you feeling all right? Sure you're not going to go berserk on us? Malfoy was holding up a copy of the Daily Prophet, too. Slytherins up and down the table were sniggering, twisting in their seats to see Harry's reaction. Let me see it, Harry said to Ron. Give it here. Very reluctantly, Ron handed over the newspaper. Harry turned it over and found himself staring at his own picture. Beneath the banner headline, Harry Potter, Disturbed and Dangerous. The boy who defeated he who must not be named is unstable and possibly dangerous, writes Rita Skeeter, special correspondent. Oh, I ducked out for a second there, sorry. I'm dropping some frames today, I apologize. Harry Potter, disturbed and dangerous. The boy who defeated he who must not be named is unstable and possibly dangerous, writes Rita Skeeter, special correspondent. Alarming evidence has recently come to light about Harry Potter's strange behavior, which casts doubts upon his suitability to complete in a demanding competition like the Triwizard Tournament or even to attend Hogwarts School. Potter, the Daily Prophet can exclusively reveal, regularly collapses at school and is often heard to complain of pain in the scar on his forehead, relic of the curse which you-know-who attempted to kill him with. 
on Monday last. Midway through a divination lesson, your daily prophet reporter witnessed Potter storming from the class, claiming that his scar was hurting too badly to continue studying. It is possible, say top experts at St. Mungo's Hospital for Magical Maladies and Injuries, that Potter's brain was affected by the attack inflicted upon him by you-know-who, and that his insistence that the scar is still hurting is an expression of his deep-seated confusion. He might even be pretending, said one specialist. This could be a plea for attention. The Daily Prophet, however, has unearthed worrying facts about Harry Potter that Albus Dumbledore, headmaster of Hogwarts, has carefully concealed from the wizarding public. Potter can speak Parseltongue, reveals Draco Malfoy, a Hogwarts fourth year. There were a lot of attacks on students a couple of years ago, and most people thought Potter was behind them after they saw him lose his temper at a dueling club and set a snake on another boy. It was all hushed up, too, but he's made friends with werewolves and giants. We think he'd do anything for a bit of power. Parseltongue, the ability to converse with snakes, has long been considered a dark art. Indeed, the most famous parcelmouth of all mm, the most famous parcelmouth of our times is none other than you know who himself. A member of the Dark Force Defense League, who wished to remain unnamed, stated that he would regard any wizard who could speak Parseltongue as worthy of investigation. Personally, I would be highly suspicious of anyone who could converse with snakes, as serpents are often used in the worst kinds of dark magic, and are historically associated with evildoers. Similarly, Anyone who seeks out the company of such vicious creatures as werewolves and giants would appear to have a fondness for violence. Albus Dumbledore should surely consider whether a boy such as this should be allowed to compete in the Triwizard Tournament. Some fear that Potter might resort to the Dark Arts in his desperation to win the tournament, the third task of which takes place this evening. "'Gone off me a bit, hasn't she?' said Harry lightly, folding up the paper. Over at the Slytherin table, Malfoy, Crabbe, and Goyle were laughing at him, tapping their foreheads with their fingers, pulling grotesquely mad faces, and wiggling their tongues like snakes. "'How did she know that your scar hurt in divination?' Ron said. There's no way that she was there. There's no way that she could have heard that. The window was open, said Harry. I opened it to breathe. You were at the top of the North Tower, Hermione said. Your voice couldn't have carried all the way down to the grounds. Well, you're the one who's supposed to be researching ma magical methods of bugging, said Harry. You tell me how she did it. I've been trying, said Hermione. An odd, dreamy expression suddenly came over Hermione's face. She slowly raised a hand and ran her fingers through her hair. "'Are you all right?' said Ron, frowning at her. "'Yes,' said Hermione, breathlessly. She ran her fingers through her hair again and then held her hand up to her mouth as though speaking into an invisible walkie-talkie. Harry and Ron stared at each other. I've had an idea, Hermione said, gazing into space. I think I know, because then no one would be able to see. Even Moody, and she'd been able to get onto the window ledge, but she's not allowed, 
She's definitely not allowed. I think we've got her. Just give me two seconds in the library, just to make sure. With that, Hermione seized her school bag and dashed out of the Great Hall. Oi! Ron called after her. We've got our history of magic exam in ten minutes. Blimey, he said, turning back to Harry. We must really hate that Skeeter woman to risk missing the start of an exam. What's you going to do in Binz's class? Read again? Exempt from the end-of-term tests as a Triwizard champion, Harry had been sitting in the back of every exam class so far, looking up fresh hexes for the third task. I suppose so, Harry said to Ron, but just then Professor McGonagall came walking alongside the Gryffindor table toward him. Potter, the champions are congregating in the chamber off the hall after breakfast, she said. But the task isn't till tonight, said Harry, accidentally spilling scrambled eggs down his front, afraid he had mistaken the time. I am aware of that, Potter, she said. The champions' families will be allowed to watch the final task, you know. This is simply a chance for you to greet them. She moved away. Harry gaped after her. She doesn't expect the Dursleys to turn up, does she? Oh, whoops. She doesn't expect the Dursleys to turn up, does she? He asked Ron blankly. Dunno, said Ron. Harry, I better hurry. I'm going to be late for beans. See you later. Harry finished his breakfast in the emptying Great Hall. He saw Fleur Delacour get up from the Ravenclaw table and join Cedric as he crossed to the side chamber and entered. Crumb slouched off to join them shortly afterward. Harry stayed where he was. He really didn't want to go into the chamber. He had no family, no family who would turn up to see him risk his life anyway. But just as he was getting up, thinking he might as well go up to the library and do a spot more hex research, the door of the side chamber opened and Cedric stuck his head out. Harry, come on. They're waiting for you. Utterly perplexed, Harry got up. The Dursleys couldn't possibly be here, could they? He walked across the hall and opened the door into the chamber. Cedric and his parents were just inside the door. Victor Crumb was over in a corner, conversing with his dark-haired mother and father in rapid Bulgarian. He had inherited his father's hooked nose. On the other side of the room, Fleur was jabbering away in French to her mother. Fleur's little sister, Gabrielle, was holding her mother's hand. She waved at Harry, who waved back, grinning. Then he saw Mrs. Weasley and Bill standing in front of the fireplace, beaming at him. Surprise! said Mrs. Weasley, excitedly as he smiled broadly and walked over to them. I thought we'd come and watch Harry. She bent down and kissed him on the cheek. You all right? said Bill, grinning at Harry and shaking his hand. Charlie wanted to come, but we couldn't get time off. They said that you were incredible against the Horntail. Fleur Delacour, Harry noticed, was eyeing Bill with great interest over her mother's shoulder. Harry could tell she had no objection whatsoever to the long hair or earrings with fangs on them. This is really nice of you, Harry muttered to Mrs. Weasley. I thought for a moment... The Weasleys. Oh, the Weasleys. I thought for a moment... The Dursleys. Hmm, said Mrs. Weasley, pursing her lips. 
She had always refrained from criticizing the Dursleys in front of Harry, but her eyes flashed every time they were mentioned. "'It's great being back here,' said Bill, looking around the chamber. Violet, the fat lady's friend, winked at him from her frame. "'Good grief, Bill. <laughs> "'Haven't seen this place for five years. "'Is that the picture of the Mad Knight still around? "'Sir Cadigan?' "'Oh, yeah,' said Harry, who had met Sir Cadigan the previous year. "'And the fat lady?' said Bill. "'She was here in my time,' said Mrs. Weasley. "'She gave me such a telling off one night when I got back at the dormitory at four in the morning.' "'What were you doing out of your dormitory at four in the morning?' said Bill, surveying his mother with amazement. Mrs. Weasley grinned, her eyes twinkling. "'Your father and I had been for a night-time stroll,' she said. "'He got caught by a pulley on Pringle. He was the caretaker in those days. Your father has still got the marks.' "'You fancy giving us a tour, Harry?' said Bill. "'Yeah, okay,' said Harry and they made their way back toward the door into the great hall. As they passed Amos Diggory, he looked around. "'There you are, aren't you?' he said, looking Harry up and down. "'But you're not feeling quite as full of yourself now that Cedric's caught up you in points, are you?' "'What?' said Harry. "'Ignore him,' said Cedric in a low voice to Harry, frowning. "'Uh.' frowning after his father. He's been angry ever since Rita Skeeter's article about the Triwizard Tournament. You know, when she made you out to be the only Hogwarts champion. Didn't bother to correct her, though, did he? said Amos, loudly enough for Harry to hear as he started to walk out of the door with Mrs. Weasley and Bill. Still, you show him, said. Beaten him once before, haven't you? Rita Skeeter goes out of her way to cause trouble, Amos. Mrs. Weasley said angrily. I would have thought you'd know that, working at the Ministry. Mr. Diggory looked as though he were going to say something angrily, but his wife laid a hand on his arm, and he merely shrugged and turned away. Harry had a very enjoyable morning, walking over the sunny grounds with Bill and Mrs. Weasley, showing them the Bobaton carriage and the Durmstrang ship. Mrs. Weasley was intrigued by the Whomping Willow, which had been planted after she had left the school, and reminisced at length about the gamekeeper before Hagrid, a man called Og. "'How's Percy?' Harry asked as they walked around the greenhouses. "'Not good,' said Bill. "'He's very upset,' said Mrs. Weasley, lowering her voice and glancing around. "'The Ministry wants to keep Mr. Crouch's disappearance quiet, but Percy's been holding for questioning about the instructions that Mr. Crouch has been sending in.' They seem to think that there's a chance they were genuinely written by him. Percy's been under a lot of strain. They're not letting him fill in for Mr. Crouch as the fifth judge tonight. Cornelius Fudge is going to be doing it for him. I might have said Fudge twice. Did I say Fudge twice? They're not letting him fill in for Mr. Crouch as the fifth judge tonight. Cornelius Fudge is going to be doing it. That's what it should have said. It's a lot of syllables. <laughs> Yeah, I might have dropped some, uh, some sound for a little bit there. Am I back? I hope I'm back now. Hopefully things are right as rain once more. They returned to the castle for lunch. Mum! Bill! said Ron, sounding stunned as he joined the Gryffindor table. 
What are you doing here? Came to watch Harry in the last task, said Mrs Weasley brightly. I must say it makes a lovely change not having to cook. How was your exam? Oh, okay, said Ron. Couldn't remember all the goblin rebels' names, so I invented a few. It's all right, he said, helping himself to a Cornish pasty while Mrs. Mrs. Weasley looked stern. They're all called stuff like Bodrod the Bearded and Erg the Unclean. It wasn't hard. Fred, George, and Ginny came to sit next to them, too. And Harry was having such a good time, he felt almost as though he were back at the burrow. He'd forgotten to worry about that evening's task, and not until Hermione turned up, halfway through lunch, did he remember that she had had a brainwave about Rita Skeeter. Are you going to tell us... Hermione shook her head warningly and glanced at Mrs. Weasley. Hello, Hermione, said Mrs. Weasley, much more stiffly than usual. Hello, said Hermione, her smile faltering at the cold expression on Mrs. Weasley's face. Rita looked between them, then said, Mrs. Weasley, you didn't believe that rubbish Rita Skeeter wrote in Witch Weekly, did you? Because Hermione's not my girlfriend. Oh, said Mrs. Weasley. No, of course not. But she became considerably warmer toward Hermione after that. Marie says, Mrs. Weasley's so protective with Harry. <laughs> it's true. She is. Yeah, um, it's funny that, you know, Again, I, I'm, I, I say it a lot, I know, but it's it's important to remember, you know? This is, this is a story about Harry, overall. The, the Harry Potter books are about Harry. Um, but never take for granted all the people it took to get Harry to where he gets at the end. Never forget the people like Sirius, like... Mrs. Weasley, who, you know, they, you know, Mrs. Weasley isn't like carrying him on her shoulders and teaching him all sorts of crazy magic. She is doing what she can. She is, she is expressing her talents to help. You don't need to do everything for people. Do something for people, though. All right. Harry, Bill, and Mrs. Weasley whiled away the afternoon with a long walk around the castle then returned to the Great Hall for the evening feast. Ludo Bagman and Cornelius Fudge had joined the staff table now. Bagman looked quite cheerful, but Cornelius Fudge, who was sitting next to Madame Maxime, looked stern and was not talking. Madame Maxime was concentrating on her plate, and Harry thought her eyes looked red. Hagrid kept glancing along the table at her. There were more courses than usual, but Harry, who was starting to feel really nervous now, didn't eat much. As the enchanted ceiling overhead began to fade from blue to a dusky purple, Dumbledore rose to his feet at the staff table, and silence fell. Ladies and gentlemen, in five minutes' time I will be asking you to make your way to the Quidditch field for the third and final task of the Triwizard Tournament. Will the champions please follow Mr. Bagman down to the stadium now? Harry got up. The Gryffindors all along the table were applauding him. The Weasleys and Hermione all wished him good luck, and he headed off out of the Great Hall with Cedric, Fleur, and Victor. Feeling all right, Harry? Bagman asked as they went down the stone steps out onto the grounds. 
Confident? I'm okay, said Harry. It was sort of true. He was nervous, but he kept running over all the hexes and spells he had been practicing in his mind as they walked, and the knowledge that he could remember them all made him feel better. They walked onto the Quidditch field, which was now completely unrecognizable. A twenty-foot-high hedge ran all the way around the edge of it. There was a gap right in front of them, the entrance to the vast maze. The passage beyond it looked dark and creepy. Five minutes later, the stands had begun to fill. The air was full of excited voices and the rumbling of feet as the hundreds of students filled into their seats. The sky was a deep, clear blue now, and the first stars were starting to appear. Hagrid, Professor Moody, Professor McGonagall, and Professor Flitwick came walking into the stadium and approached Bagman and their champions. They were wearing large, red, luminous stars on their hats, all except Hagrid, who had one on the back of his moleskin vest. "'We are going to be patrolling the outside of the maze,' said McGonagall to the champions. "'If you get into difficulty and wish to be rescued, send red sparks into the air, and one of us will come and help, uh... <laughs> McGonagall didn't practice nearly enough. "'And one of us will come and get you. Do you understand?' The champions nodded. "'Off you go, then,' said Bagman brightly to the four patrollers. Good luck, Harry, Hagrid whispered, and the four of them walked away in different directions to station themselves around the maze. Bagman now pointed his wand to his throat, muttered, Sonorous, and his magically magnified voice echoed into the stands. Oh boy, oh no, how am I going to do, how am I going to do my, my magic echo? Hold on, hold on, I have a quick fix for this, hold on. Five, two, one. Hold on. I can do this. I can do it. I can do it. <laughs> Let me go into my settings and turn my monitor on. There we go. Okay. Now, it's going to be weird and different, but it'll be there. Okay. So, here's what I'm going to do. Oh, it's going to be really strange. I hope I don't get any mic feedback. All right, here goes nothing. Bagman now pointed his wand at his throat, muttered, Sonorous, and his magically magnified voice echoed into the stands. Ladies and gentlemen, the third and final task of the Triwizard Tournament is about to begin. Let me remind you how the points currently stand. Tied in first place with 85 points each, Mr. Cedric Diggory and Mr. Harry Potter, both of Hogwarts School. The cheers and applause sent birds from the forbidden forest fluttering into the darkening sky. In second place with 80 points, Mr. Victor Crumb of Durmstrang Institute. More applause. And... In third place, Miss Fleur Delacour of Beaubaton Academy. Harry could just make out Mrs. Weasley, Bill, Ron, and Hermione applauding Fleur politely halfway up the stands. She waved up at them, and they waved back, beaming at him. 
So, on my whistle, Harry and Cedric, said Bagman. Three, two, one! <laughs> he gave a short blast on his whistle, and Harry and Cedric hurried forward into the maze. The towering hedges cast black shadows across the path, and whether because they were so tall and thick, or because they had been enchanted, the sound of the surrounding crowd was silenced the moment they entered the maze. Harry felt almost as though he were underwater again. He pulled out his wand, muttered, Lumos, and heard Cedric do the same, just behind him. After about fifty yards, they reached a fork. They looked at each other. See you, Harry said, and he took off down the left one, while Cedric took the right. Harry heard Bagman's whistle for the second time. Crumb had entered the maze. Harry sped up. His chosen path seemed completely deserted. He turned right and hurried on, holding his wand high over his head, trying to see as far as possible. Still, there was nothing in sight. Bagman's whistle blew in the distance for a third time. All of the champions were inside now. Harry kept looking behind him. The old feeling that he was being watched was upon him. The maze was growing darker with every passing minute as the sky overhead deepened to navy. He reached a second fork. Point me, he whispered to his wand, holding it flat in his palm. The wand spun around once and pointed to his right, into the solid hedge. That way was north, and he knew he needed to go northwest for the center of the maze. The best he could do was to take the left fork and go right again as soon as possible. The path ahead was empty, too, and when Harry reached a right turn and took it, he found his way unblocked. Harry didn't know why, but the lack of obstacles was unnerving him. Surely he should have met something by now. It felt as though the maze were luring him into a false sense of security. Then he heard movement right behind him. He held out his wand, ready to attack, but its beam fell only upon Cedric, who had just hurried out of a path on the right-hand side. Cedric looked severely shaken. The sleeve of his robe was smoking. Hagrid's blast-ended scroots, he hissed. They're enormous. I only just got away. He shook his head and dived out of sight along another path. <laughs> Just, I'm just imagining Cedric Diggory just like diving into the hedge next to him. I'm out. He shook his head and dived out of sight along another path. Keen to put plenty of distance between himself and the scroots, Harry hurried off again. Then as he turned a corner, he saw a Dementor gliding toward him. Twelve feet tall, its face hidden by its hood, its rotting, scabbed hands outstretched, it advanced, sensing its way blindly toward him. Harry could hear its rattling breath. He felt clammy coldness stealing over him, but he knew what he had to do. He summoned the happiest thought he could, concentrating with all of his might on the thought of getting out of the maze and celebrating with Ron and Hermione. Raised his wand and cried, EXPECTO PATRONUM! A silver stag erupted from the end of Harry's wand and galloped toward the Dementor, which fell back and tripped over the hem of its robes. Harry had never seen a Dementor stumble. Hang on, he shouted, advancing in the wake of his silver Patronus. You're a bogart. Ridiculous. 
There was a loud crack, and the shapeshifter exploded into a wisp of smoke. The silver stag faded from sight. Harry wished it could have stayed. He would have liked some company. But he moved on, quickly and quietly as possible, listening hard, his wand held high once more. Left, right, left again. Twice he found himself facing dead ends. He did the four-point spell again and found that he was going too far east. He turned back, took a right turn, and saw an odd golden mist floating ahead of him. Harry approached it cautiously, pointing the wand's beam at it. This looked like some kind of enchantment. He wondered whether he might be able to blast it out of the way. Reducto, he said. The spell shot straight through the mist, leaving it intact. He supposed he should have known better. The reductor curse was for solid objects. What would happen if he walked through the mist? Was it worth chancing it, or should he double back? He was still hesitating when a scream shattered the silence. Fleur! Harry yelled. There was silence. He stared all around him. What had happened to her? Her scream seemed to have come from somewhere ahead. He took a deep breath and ran through the enchanted mist. The world turned upside down. Harry was hanging from the ground, with his hair on end, his glasses dangling off of his nose, threatening to fall into the bottomless sky. He clutched at them to the end of his nose and hung there, terrified. He felt as though his feet were glued to the grass, which had now become the ceiling. Below him, the dark, star-spangled heavens stretched endlessly. He felt as though if he tried to move one of his feet, he would fall away from the earth completely. Think he told himself, as all the blood rushed to his head. Think. But not one of the spells he had practiced had been designed to combat a sudden reversal of ground and sky. Did he dare move his foot? He could hear the blood pounding in his ears. He had two choices. Try and move, or send up red sparks and get rescued and disqualified from the task. He shut his eyes so he wouldn't be able to see the view of endless space below him and pulled his right foot as hard as he could away from the grassy ceiling. Immediately, the world righted itself. Harry fell forward onto his knees under the wonderfully solid ground. He felt temporarily limp with shock. He took a deep, steadying breath and then got up again and hurried forward, looking over his shoulder as he ran away from the golden mist, which twinkled innocently at him in the moonlight. He paused at a junction of two paths and looked around for some sign of Fleur. He was sure it had been she who had screamed. What had she met? Was she all right? There was no sign of red sparks. Did that mean she had got herself out of trouble, or was she in such trouble she couldn't reach her wand? Harry took the right fork with an increasing feeling of unease. But at the same time, he couldn't help thinking, one champion down. The cup was somewhere close by, and it sounded as though Fleur was no longer in the running. He'd got this far, hadn't he? What if he actually managed to win? 
Fleetingly, and for the first time since he'd found himself champion, he saw himself again, raising the Triwizard Cup in front of the rest of the school. He meant nothing for ten minutes, but kept running into dead ends. Twice, he took the same wrong turn. Finally, he found a new route and started to jog along it, his wave light... His wand light waving, making his shadow flicker and distort on the hedge walls. Then he rounded another corner and found himself facing a blast-ended scroot. Cedric was right. It was enormous. Ten feet long, it looked more like a giant scorpion than anything. Its long sting was curled over its back. Its thick armor glinted in the light from Harry's wand, which he pointed at it. Stupefy! The spell hit the Scroot's armor and rebounded. Harry ducked just in time but could smell the burning hair. It had singed the top of its head. What? Oh, excuse me. But could smell burning hair. It had singed the top of his head. The Scroot issued a blast of fire from its end and flew forward toward him. Impedimentia! Harry yelled. The spell hit the Scroot's armor again and ricocheted off. Harry staggered back a few paces and fell over. Impedimentia! The Scroot was inches from him when it froze. He had managed to hit it on its fleshy, shell-less underside. Panting, Harry pushed himself away from it and ran, hard, in the opposite direction. The impediment curse was not permanent. The Scroot would regain the use of its legs at any moment. He took a left path and hit a dead end, a right, and hit another, forcing himself to stop, heart hammering. He performed the four-point spell again backtracked and chose a path that would take him northwest. He had been hurrying along the new path for a few minutes when he heard something on the path running parallel to his own that made him stop. "'What are you doing?' yelled Cedric's voice. "'What the hell do you think you're doing?' And then Harry heard Crumb's voice. "'Crucio!' The air was suddenly full of Cedric's yells. Horrified, Harry began sprinting up his path, trying to find a way into Cedric's. When none appeared, he tried the reductor curse again. It wasn't very effective, but it burned a small hole in the hedge through which Harry forced his leg, kicking at the thin brambles, kicking at the thick brambles and branches until they broke and made an opening. He struggled through it, tearing his robes, and looking to his right, saw Cedric jerking and twitching on the ground, Crumb standing over him. Harry pulled himself up and pointed his wand at Crumb just as Crumb looked up. Crumb turned and began to run. Stupefy! Harry yelled. The spell hit Crumb in the back. He stopped dead in his tracks, fell forward, and lay motionless, face down in the grass. Harry dashed over to Cedric, who had stopped twitching and was laying there panting, his hands over his face. Are you all right? Harry said roughly, grabbing Cedric's arm. Yeah, panted Cedric. Yeah, I, I don't believe it. He crept up behind me. I, I heard him. I turned around, and he had his wand on me. Cedric got up. He was still shaking. He and Harry looked down at Crumb. I can't believe this. I thought he was all right, Harry said, staring at Crumb. So did I, said Cedric. Did you hear Fleur scream earlier? said Harry. 
Yeah, said Cedric. You don't think Crumb got her too? I don't know, said Harry slowly. Shall we leave him here? Cedric murmured. No, said Harry. I reckon we should send up some red sparks. Someone will come and collect him. Otherwise he'll probably be eaten by a scroot. He'd deserve it, Cedric muttered, but all the same, he raised his wand and shot a shower of red sparks into the air, which hovered high above Crumb, marking the spot where he lay. Harry and Cedric stood there in the darkness for a moment, looking around them. Then Cedric said, Well, I suppose we'd better go on. What? said Harry. Oh, yeah. Right. It was an odd moment. He and Cedric had been briefly united against Crumb. Now the fact that they were opponents came back to Harry. The two of them proceeded up the dark path without speaking, and Harry turned left and Cedric right. Cedric's footsteps soon died away. Harry moved on, continuing to use the four-point spell, making sure he was moving in the right direction. It was between him and Cedric now. His desire to reach the cup first was now burning stronger than ever, but he could hardly believe what he'd just seen Crumb do. The use of an unforgivable curse on a fellow human meant a life term in Azkaban. That's what Moody had told them. Crumb surely couldn't have wanted the Triwizard Cup that badly. Harry sped up. Every so often he hit more dead ends, but the increasing darkness made him feel sure he was getting nearer the heart of the maze. Then, as he strode down a long, straight path, he saw movement once again, and his beam of wand light hit an extraordinary creature, one which he had only seen in picture form, in his monster book of monsters. It was a sphinx. It had the body of an over-large lion, great clawed paws, and a long yellowish tail ending in a brown tuft. Its head, however, was that of a woman. She turned her long, almond-shaped eyes upon Harry as she approached, as he approached. He raised his wand, hesitating. She was not crouching as if to spring, but pacing from side to side of the path, blocking his progress. Then she spoke in a deep, hoarse voice. You are very near your goal. The quickest way is past me. So, so will you move, please, said Harry, knowing that the answer was going to be no. No, she said, continuing to pace. Not unless you can answer my riddle. Answer on your first guess, I let you pass. Answer wrongfully, I attack. Remain silent. I will let you walk away from me unscathed. Not the voice you expect out of that creature, is it? Harry's stomach slipped several notches. It was Hermione who was good at this sort of thing, not him. He weighed his chances. If the riddle was too hard, he could keep silent, get away from the Sphinx unharmed, and try to find an alternative route to the center. Okay, he said. 
Can I hear the riddle? The Sphinx sat down upon her hind legs, in the very middle of the path, and recited, First think of the person who lives in disguise, who deals in secrets and tells naught but lies. Next, tell me what's always the last thing to mend, the middle of middle and end of the end. And finally, give me the sound often heard during the search for a hard-to-find word. Now string them together and answer me this. Which kind of creature would you be unwilling to kiss? Harry gaped at her. Could I have it again? More slowly? He asked tentatively. She blinked at him, smiled, and repeated the poem. All the clues add up to a creature I wouldn't want to kiss, Harry asked. She merely smiled her mysterious smile. Harry took that for a yes. Harry casts his mind around. There were plenty of animals he wouldn't want to kiss. His immediate thought was a blast-ended scroot, but something told him that wasn't the answer. He'd have to try and work out the clues. A person in disguise. Harry muttered, staring at her. Who lies? Uh, that'd be an imposter? No, that's not my guess. Uh, a spy? I'll come back to that. Could you give me the next clue again, please? She repeated the next lines of the poem. The last thing to mend. Harry repeated. Uh, no idea. Middle of middle? Can I have the... Can I have the last bit again? She gave him the last four lines. The sound often heard during a search for a hard-to-find word, said Harry. Uh, that'd be... Uh, hang on. Uh. Uh is a sound. The Sphinx smiled at him. Spy, uh, spy, uh, said Harry, pacing up and down. A creature I wouldn't want to kiss? A spider! The Sphinx smiled more broadly. She got up, stretched her front legs, and then moved aside for him to pass. Thanks, said Harry, and, amazed at his own bril brilliance, he dashed forward. He had to be close now. He had to be. His mind was telling him he was bang on course. As long as he didn't meet anything too horrible, he might have a chance. Harry broke into a run. He had a choice of paths up ahead. Point me! He whispered again to his wand, and it spun around and pointed him to the right-hand one. He dashed up this one and saw the light ahead. The Triwizard Cup was gleaming on a plinth a hundred yards away. Suddenly a dark figure hurtled onto the path in front of him. Cedric was going to get there first. Cedric was sprinting as fast as he could toward the cup, and Harry knew he could never catch up. Cedric was much taller, had much longer legs. Then Harry saw something immense over a hedge to his left. Moving quickly along a path that intersected with his own, it was moving so fast Cedric was about to run into it, and Cedric, eyes on the cup, had not seen it. 
Cedric! Harry bellowed. On your left! Cedric looked around just in time to hurl himself past the thing and avoid colliding with it, but in his haste, he tripped. Harry saw Cedric's wand fly out of his hand as a gigantic spider stepped into the path and began to tear down upon Cedric. Stupefy! Harry yelled. The spell hit the, ch hit the spider's gigantic, hairy, black body, but for all the good it did, he might as well have thrown a stone at it. The spider jerked, scuttled around, and ran at Harry instead. Stupefy! Impedimentia! Stupefy! But it was no use. The spider was either so large or so magical that the spells were doing no more than aggravating it. Harry had one horrifying glimpse of eight shining black eyes and razor-sharp pinchers before it was upon him. He was lifted into the air in its front legs. Struggling madly, he tried to kick it, his leg connected with the pinchers, and the next moment he was in excruciating pain. He could hear Cedric yelling, Stupefy! Oh, boy. <laughs> Look, he's stressed. But his spell had no more effect than Harry's. Harry raised his wand, and the spider opened its pinchers one more time, and he shouted, Expelliarmus! It worked. The disarming spell made the spider drop him, but that meant that Harry fell twelve feet onto his already injured leg, which crumpled beneath him. Without pausing to think, he aimed high at the spider's underbelly, as he had done with the scroot, and shouted, Stupefy! Just as Cedric yelled the same thing. The two spells combined did what one alone had not. The spider keeled over sideways, flattening a nearby hedge and strewing the path with a tangle of hairy legs. Harry! he heard Cedric shouting. Are you alright? Did it fall on you? No! Harry called back, panting. He looked down at his leg. It was bleeding profusely. No, it doesn't say that. Why did, why did my mind bring that one up? It doesn't say that. It was bleeding freely. He could see some sort of thick, gluey secretion from the spider's pinchers on its torn robes. He tried to get up, but his leg was shaking badly and did not want to support his weight. He leaned against the hedge, gasping for breath, and looked around. Cedric was standing feet from the Triwizard tri Cup, which was gleaming behind him. Take it, then, Harry panted to Cedric. Go on. Take it. You're there. But Cedric didn't move. He merely stood there, looking at Harry. Then he turned to stare at the cup. Harry saw the longing expression on his face in its golden light. Cedric looked around at Harry again, who was now holding on to the hedge to support himself. Cedric took a deep breath. <sighs> you take it. You should win. That's twice you've saved my neck in there. That's not how it's supposed to work, Harry said. He felt angry. His leg was very painful. He was aching all over from trying to throw off the spider, and after all of his efforts, Cedric had beaten him to it. Just as he had beaten Harry to ask Cho to the ball. The one who reaches the cup first gets the points. That's you. I'm telling you, I'm not going to win any races on this leg. 
Cedric took a few paces nearer to the stunned spider, away from the cup, shaking his head. No, he said. Stop being noble, said Harry irritably. Just take it, and we can get out of here. Cedric watched Harry trying to steady himself, holding tight to the hedge. You told me about the dragons, Cedric said. I would have gone down in the first task if you hadn't told me what was coming. I had help on that too, Harry snapped, trying to mop up his bloody leg with his robes. You helped me with the egg, we're square. I had help with the egg in the first place, said Cedric. We're still square, said Harry, testing his leg gingerly. It shook violently as he put weight on it. He had sprained his ankle when the spider had dropped him. You should have got more points in the second task, said Cedric mulishly. You stay behind to get all the hostages. I should have done that. I was the only one who was thick enough to take that song seriously, said Harry bitterly. Just take the cup. No, said Cedric. He stepped over the spider's tangled legs to join Harry, who stared at him. Cedric was serious. He was walking away from the sort of glory Hufflepuff house hadn't had in centuries. Go on, Cedric said. He looked as though this was costing him every ounce of resolution he had. But his face was set. His arms were folded. He seemed decided. Harry looked from Cedric to the cup. For one shining moment, he saw himself emerging from the maze, holding it. He saw himself holding the Triwizard Cup aloft, heard the roar of the crowd, saw Cho's face shining with admiration, more clearly than he had ever seen it before. And then the picture faded, and he found himself staring at Cedric's shadowy, stubborn face. Both of us, Harry said. What? We'll take it at the same time. It's still a Hogwarts victory. We'll tie for it. Cedric stared at Harry. He unfolded his arms. You... are you sure? Yeah, said Harry. Yeah, we've helped each other out, haven't we? We both got here. Let's just take it together. For a moment, Cedric looked as though he couldn't believe his ears. Then, his face split in a grin. You're on, he said. Come here. He grabbed Harry's arm below the shoulder and helped Harry limp toward the plinth where the cup stood. When they had reached it, they both held out a hand over one of the cup's gleaming handles. On three, all right, said Harry. One, two, three. He and Cedric both grasped a handle. Instantly, Harry felt a jerk somewhere behind his navel. His feet had left the ground. He could not unclench the hand holding the Triwizard Cup. It was pulling him onward in a howl of wind and swirling color. Cedric at his side. And that is the end of chapter 31.
Ooh-woo. Toy wizard. <laughs> General, don't. Please. Please don't. I beg you. Let's go back to the library. So. This is a good example of... Um, a, uh, something important done in writing. And this is, um, I, maybe Luke can help me out if there's a proper term for it, but um, when you're trying to hint at something that you can't say explicitly, otherwise it will sort of ruin the effect of it, um, it's an interesting moment. J.K. Rowling was very intentional with the language that she used here. Every time a port key was used, she used the same language. There's a jerk from, quote, somewhere behind his navel. That's very specific language. She doesn't use the term navel for other things. She, uh, and and not, she doesn't just say, like, jerk in his navel, but somewhere behind his navel. And she repeats that exact phrase, somewhere behind his navel. For anybody who doesn't know, navel is your belly button. Uh, but it's interesting, right? Because then she can say something without actually saying it. Um... So she she has set this up as port key specific language. This is like a this is like a a magical spell to summon the idea of the port key, and then without having to say port key, she evokes it here. Interesting, right? All right, what's Chapman up to? Talking about uh, talking about spiders, eh? You're talking about spiders, eh? How do you feel about the spiders? Emily said, wow, I did not think that was the answer. I just really hate spiders. Yep, spider it is. And yeah, you notice, um, let's see, where General said it, I think. Yep, I love how Harry's literally saying two-thirds of the answer and not getting it. He's such an icon. It is interesting. Um, yeah, he, he gets, he doesn't get the whole thing. He misses the part in the middle where it says the middle of middle and end of the end. It's the letter D. <laughs> uh D being the two middle letters in middle and the last word, the last letter of end. Um, Ashling says, I just scream and run. That's one, that's one of the interesting things I notice in the preparation here. And I think part of it is, you know, I, I, we could blame any one of the, the, I think I've, I've seen it called the golden trio in the years since I first read these books, but, um, Harry, Ron and Hermione, they really focused on, offensive spells and by that i mean like spells to impede other things um i'm sure they assumed that there were going to be additional complications beyond just solve the maze but in my head i would have gone like almost exclusively defensive spells uh i would have wanted to go in there i mean with the exception of like one of the the hedge trimmer spell uh there's no hedge trimmer spell um but uh I would have gone pretty defensive. I would have wanted something to help me kind of burn through the sides of the maze and just sort of beeline straight toward it because it seems like that would have been a pretty good option. But uh, I don't know. That's what I would have gone with. Clearly, it's not against the rules to go through the maze because Harry's done so. Um, I realize it's thick and it was probably magical and, and stronger than usual, but I would have tried to kind of bolster my abilities to do that sort of thing. General just says, geez, neither of you get the cup. As they're, uh, yeah, they're arguing back and forth. You take it. No, you take it. No, you take it. 
Emily Johnson says, did you read the Chamber of Secrets? Is there a big scene about spiders who are big and hairy? And if I were hairy, I would have fan. I would have, oh, I would have ran. Yes, um, I do remember the scene. Uh, that one, yeah, that one, there's there's nothing to be done there. And that one from uh, from Chamber of Secrets, like there's nothing for him to do. He should have just gotten out of there as quick as he could. I believe at that point um, they were in, remember, the Ford Anglia. This is uh, Ron's family's former flying car. It's now lost in the Forbidden Forest. Um, <laughs> Ron's going to need to get a summer job to make up that one. Um, but... Uh, I believe in that they had established that the spiders had already sort of closed in the gap behind them and they weren't going to be able to get away. Actually, wait a second. There were there were scenes... The, the Ford Anglia wasn't there at the beginning of that scene. They stumbled into that one, like a couple of mugs. Yeah, I, I think they knew they had to go talk to the spider and they got to get it done before they can run. They'll, they'll run later, and they did. Let's see. Hmm. Nikki says, just got a notice saying you just got on, but it seems you've been on. It does seem that way, doesn't it? Yeah, I think I've been, I've been, uh, I've called it dropping frames. I don't think that's accurate, but uh, I think I have been dropping in and out of, uh, of stream fidelity for a minute. Let's see. Ashlyn says, I wish they had made Sirius more prominent in the movies. I could not agree with you more. I, I so wish they had as well. Um, especially, you know, they had a fantastic actor to work with there. Gary Oldman, you couldn't ask for a better one. Uh, I, I don't find his voice, his voice wasn't distinct enough from other characters that I've already done for me to try and do an impression of him. You know, he's not like Hagrid where it's like a very specific voice. Um, but, I mean, if there was anybody kind of in that whole series other than perhaps Alan Rickman, whose performance I would want to, you know, whose performance I'm uh, envious of, truly, uh, it would be Gary Oldman. I do wish they'd let him get more into it. Um, I do some writing as well, and I'm uh, over the course of time, I've realized kind of the importance of cutting things out for things like this. But I do, I do hope that someday, you know, someday when... I don't know. I, I don't think it's going to happen, but I hope someday we get the uh, the like TV show version of this. I I probably uh, that would be a Pandora's box of entertainment. Maybe it's not worth getting into. I wonder if you guys picked that up. That was my belly rumbling. All right. Ashton says I'm with Ron. Follow the butterfly. HN1 says illusion rings a bell. Actually, because spiders are evil, just saying. General says, wow, I can't believe Sam's been cheating on the stream. I can't believe this kind of adultery. <laughs> Michaela, ooh, Sam has envy. I do. I do. I got it. I got it all up in me. Okay, so a couple of questions. Uh, not questions, a couple of comments. Uh, I am going to do beans. Uh, I am going to take my break. I'm going to do a quick break, and then I'll be back in just a sec. Then we'll do beans. Uh, we'll do a review. And then our next chapter for tonight is really short. Um, it's like six pages long, I want to say. It's very, very short. Um, it might be a, uh, six, seven. It's less than 10 pages. Uh, the chapter we just read for reference was about 25. Uh, so it's going to be super short, but we're going to keep on the regular schedule. 
HN1 says, I think I'm about five minutes behind in chat. Anyway, 20 years always gets a remake. Yeah. I don't know. Cause when I'm, when I'm, when I'm that age, am I going to, I hope I can still connect with it in the same way, but of course it's probably not going to be made for me, nor should it necessarily. Like it's JK Rowling was very intentional about trying to cover issues pressing to a certain age. And that age is not middle age. <laughs> Ashling says, hey, the actor who played Sirius was hot. Ashling says it like that, too. Hot. I don't know what Ashling sounds like. But probably, right? Yeah, Gary Oldman, he is a fine-looking feller. Yeah. <laughs> as, as we say non-committally in the United States. <coughs> Excuse me. Ducks Infinity says, the Ford Anglia crashes into the crowd before that point. They were trapped. Jeff, gorgeous. Jeff says, gorgeous Sphinx picture from I Guy Jinai. I could not agree more. That is a gorgeous one. Also, I saw your, com I saw your comment on one of the, the, uh, the videos uh, that I woke you up with constant vigilance. Because um, uh, Moody is, uh, that's a startling moment with Moody. And sounds like Jeff was about to fall asleep and I woke him up. Sorry. Luke says, now I think of him as Churchill. Okay, fair enough. I actually haven't seen that one with him Him as Churchill. Um, I'm curious, though. <laughs> Ashlyn says, should I draw or play Sims as I listen to this dream? <laughs> Emily says he's 60 now. True. Interesting. All right. I'm going to take a break. I'll see you all in five minutes. Then we're going to do some beans. We're going to do some beans. Cass isn't here to help. My lovely assistant, but we're doing beans. See All right. I'm back. How's it going? How do you do? What's chat up to? Ashling married a vampire. Sounds like this. Ashling married a vampire. Sounds like this. Is your husband uh, a Scot? Or is he from England? DJ Crew. Hello. How do you do? Welcome. Uh, Emily Johnson says, I feel like everyone looks like a certain celebrity. Um, I've gotten a decent bit of Jon Snow, which I really, I think it even less looks like that from, from the perspective you guys have. Um, I, I have similarly structured facial hair and I have a, like a ponytail. Uh, other than that, mm, mm. Uh, I've also been told I look like, oh shoot, what is his name? He's in a lot of comedy movies. He likes doing stuff with Paul Rudd. Rats, what's his name? He in, he was Marshall on How I Met Your Mother. That was uh, before I grew a beard, and I'll be honest, I never really saw that one. HN1 says, I had a crush on Keanu Reeves and married a blonde guy that looks kind of like Arthur Weasley from the movies. <laughs> Arthur Weasley, okay. Okay. He is a sweet man. Ashling says, well, Arthur's a sweet man, and she is correct. Um, Emily says, someone told me I look like Julia Stiles when she was younger, but I don't see it. Ashling says, never been told I look like any celebrity. He's a Scot. Oh, he's got, he's got like the sort of raspy voice, and he's a Scot? I don't, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to talk about cliches here. <laughs> you know nothing, Jon Snow. Yeah. Yeah, 
I actually was uh, the hound for Halloween at one point. I learned how to make this like facial scar makeup stuff. I want I want to try something else because I want to start going to work as adult Harry Potter. I don't know if I think I I talked to you guys about the somebody made fan art of like adult Harry Potter and it looks quite a bit like me if I've got my glasses on. Um, like the hair is the same, the beard is pretty similar. Um, obviously skinnier than I am, uh, but hey, I'm on keto now, so I'm gonna get it. Emily says, I'm pretty sure you look like a celebrity or you are a celebrity, Ashlyn. <laughs> Ashlyn, Ashlyn, welcome back. Uh, General says, she's got a vitamin iron deficient it Italian who's always cold and is easily sunburnt and she likes the taste of iron. Oh, hmm, hmm. Keep some garlic candy. All right, so. <laughs> it's beans time now again i don't have my assistant with me she is uh she's she's doing she's doing other stuff today i always i always feel weird about giving information like too too personal information out especially if it's about somebody else and not me so you're going to have to take my word of honor tell you what i will turn away so that i definitely can't see what's going on and then i'll close my eyes when i come back let's get these beans huh Let's do this okay so all right so the boxes it's open obviously you can see what's you can see some of what's in there but nothing's nothing's out yet all right i'm gonna turn my turn my head away i gotta fiddle with my hands to try and all right it looks like this i think i'm holding it to camera i don't know okay here we go okay I'm about to bite in. I'm about to bite into this thing. What are your predictions for what this bean was based on what you saw of it? Hopefully, you saw it. It tastes pretty sweet. I think I'm going to be okay. Okay. I'm safe. It was one of the good ones. Let's see. I think maybe strawberry. We all know how terrible I am at this, but I do feel it is part of the gratification for you guys that I do guess what it was. So that when you tell me it was dark blue, <laughs> we get to have that experience again. Actually, it could also be cotton candy, I guess. But was it red? Okay, I don't think it was cinnamon, Ashling. Good guess. Michaela says licorice. Mm, I don't think so. Again, you guys only get to see a color. I'm sure most of you would be able to tell when you pop these in. Of course, this is me we're dealing with. And I don't eat a lot of, like, sugar-flavored candy. <laughs> yeah. I'm just, I'm holding out for a toasted marshmallow one because those are really good. That one wasn't bad, though. I like that one a decent bit. Okay, next one. Let's do this. I've got it. I've got it closed in my fist. Don't worry. I know. I know there's another sausage in here, and I, I got the fear in my heart about it. Tell you what, I'm gonna keep this in my fist, and I'm gonna get rid of my my uh, screen so that you guys can see it, but I can't. So here it is. This way, at least I know I'm holding it up to camera. There it is. Okay, and my eyes are closed. <laughs> All right. What do you think of that one? Hmm. 
from the outside, I think I can already tell I'm in trouble. Hmm. Hmm. Oh. It's strong. I don't think it's designed to be one of the good ones. It's not terrible, though. Hmm. You know what? No, that might be lemon. Was it yellow? That might be lemon. It came on pretty strong at first, but I think... I know, Ashling and Ashlyn. Should I just... <laughs> Ashlyn, should I call you Expression? Or Ashling, should I call you Twisty? Because <laughs> you go by Twisty Fox in the Discord, right? Lemon. No, Michaela. No, that wasn't it, actually. Michaela. No. Michaela. No. Alright. Let's go. Third one of the night. And again, I do this out of appreciation for you guys being... What are you doing? Blue, blue boy, stop that. <laughs> Hold on. Blue, no. Our cat was trying to chew up this piece of foam that I'm using to try and block the sound of uh, our air conditioning unit. And look, I, it's been a minute since I looked at the list of healthy and unhealthy foods for cats, but I'm pretty sure styrofoam isn't on there. Okay, let's do this. Again, Sorry, let me, let me go back to my original thought. This is out of appreciation for you guys telling people about the stream and helping helping get more people in here and getting more people interested in this. So I really appreciate it. All right, here we go. One more bean. One more bean. Here we go. Let me just say that a couple more times. Here it is. Again, I can't see it. Closing my eyes. All right, it's in. It's sausage. I haven't even bit into it. 100% it's sausage. Why did we have to end on sausage tonight? <sighs> Dang it. Dang it. I don't want to bite into it. <sighs> oh. oh, it's really bad. It's so bad. No, I'm not going to drink until I'm done with it. This is... I feel like this is part of the deal. You can correct me if I'm wrong, and I will gladly... Gladly take a drink, but... 100% that was sausage. It's really... It's terrible. It's... You know... I don't know if you've ever had, like... Um, like, bratwurst or breakfast sausage with, like, a little bit of maple syrup can be really good. Imagine if... That sounds as bad as it should theoretically be. That's what I've got in my mouth right now. You're sitting down to breakfast. You, my family traveled a lot when I was younger, and we we had um, we we went on a couple of trips in RVs, recreational vehicles, campers, um, whatever you guys might know them as, um, and uh, we we liked to grill at night, and then in the morning, often breakfast was like eggs and eggo waffles, um. And one thing that we did was we would have bratwurst that we had grilled over a campfire the night before. And then at breakfast, we would make Eggos. And we realized 
uh, if you take an Eggo waffle and form it into the shape of a taco shell, essentially, and put a bratwurst on there with scrambled eggs, with like a tiny little bit of syrup, it was an awesome breakfast sandwich. It was awesome. And this is from somebody who really likes bratwurst and I really like Eggo waffles. Um, scrambled eggs are good too. I mean, they're, they're, sometimes they're awesome. Sometimes they're like, eh. But uh, it, it was a great thing. However, in theory, it should be gross and disgusting. Just awful, awful thing. And yes, that's what, that's, that is the experience of a Birdie Bot's sausage flavor bean. I don't care for it, but I do appreciate you guys a lot. Rachel, by the way, I think she probably had to duck out, but Rachel, thank you for uh, coordinating my my uh, taste testing with the magical world. I don't have access to anyone that could order Birdie Bots Every Flavor Beans. Um, Rachel, of course, is my connection, so I will have to. Uh, I'll have to. I'll have to hit her up for another order. She'll have to get in touch with her wizard smuggling friends. I wonder if she knows... Actually, we haven't met that character yet. Never mind. Michaela says, Sam, quit spinning in your chair. You're ruining the magic of the green screen. Oh, does it like shift back and forth when I... Here. I can, I can look at myself again. Does it get weird? Oh, it does get weird. That's... That's no... That's no good at all. There we go. How about that? Okay, yeah, there we go. Still working out, still working out the kinks. Uh, Marie asks, what's Eggo? I don't know American food that well. So an Eggo waffle is just a waffle. It's a, it's a frozen waffle that you pop in the toaster. Michaela, language, for goodness sake, it auto hit it for me. I've got my eye on you. There's nothing I can do about the general at this point, <laughs> about the general's username, and I'm fairly confident uh, that the general has tried, and there's nothing that she can do about the general's name either. But I won't have you demeaning Eggo waffles is the is the, really the heart of the matter. Um, they are uh, frozen waffles. You pop them in the toaster. They're they're like they're not big like Belgian style waffles. They're thinner. Um, they are like roughly the profile of a slice of bread. Um, I'm not saying they're high quality food, but much in the same way that like. A donut is fantastic. Eggo waffles are fantastic. Or like, or like, uh, like Reese's peanut butter cups, um, or M and M's. They're not fantastic because, like, oh, it's super high quality chocolate or anything like that. It's just like they, somebody in a lab somewhere has figured out how to make something that's really tasty. That's what I got. I will say my my tastes have grown somewhat. Uh, I definitely prefer. <laughs> they are exquisite frozen waffles. That's not what she said the first time. She's an imposter. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Don't listen to me either. I can't talk. Uh, Cassidy and Nate and Michaela all know that there's no reason why I should be doing this stream, these Harry Potter streams, because I can't talk. We all, it's especially when I'm in the same room as those guys, but when all of us are in the same room together, uh, I, I can't form a coherent sentence. I can't put all the words together. Marie, where are you from? I'm curious. Just what country, or you can even give me like a, a, a continent, but I'm curious, uh, cause you said frozen food. That's so weird. Yeah, it's, uh, 
uh, Emily asks, what are those jelly beans called? They are Birdie Bots, every flavor beans. Let me see. Birdie Bots, every flavor beans. Um, and Ash, again, Ash Ling, aka Dark and Twisty, I'm going to refer to as Ash now. Uh, says it sounds like warm cardboard and ash you're just not that far from the truth you're just kind of close unfortunately <laughs> marie says you talk so good of them that's love uh michaela says sam no do words goo yeah sam do sam do no goo words do me dirty that's how you do me that's how you do me why you do this um Marie says, I am the crazy French lady. It's good to have one. We got to have one, right? How do you feel? How do you feel your culture is represented? Um, do you feel like, would you, hmm, as a Harry Potter fan, do you feel an affinity for Beaubaton as much as Hogwarts? Because it is local to you, of course, but it's also not covered nearly as much as Hogwarts is in the Harry Potter series. HN1 tasty cardboard. It's true. I mean, like, they're again, it's one of those things where it's not good because of its quality. It's good because I don't know. There's there's also like a nostalgia element to it. I don't know. I don't know. All right. We are already at two hours and we've only covered one chapter. Of course, the second chapter is going to be short, so it's not going to be an issue, but we should proceed, I think. Thank you for bearing with me. Again, anybody who's not into this business, go ahead and skip in the VOD till you see chapter art. Last chapter. What happened last chapter, everyone? Help me out. No, I'll do it. Um, Harry uh, gets a chance to see another article from Rita Skeeter. Now, immediately afterward, Hermione runs off. She thinks she's got some sort of brain blast about why Rita Skeeter is able to get these stories. That's after they read the article. The article itself is a whole big expose of Harry and how he is a, a dangerous individual. He can speak parcel tongue. This is something associated with dark wizards. Is he even fit to go to school at Hogwarts, much less compete in the Triwizard Tournament? They crossed. They, they, they crossed her. They crossed Rita Skeeter, and uh, she's trying to make them pay for it. Seems like Harry is letting it kind of roll off of him. He's always been used to getting strange looks from people. Anyway, uh, he gets another letter from Sirius. Uh, really intent that uh, he shouldn't do anything risky. Um, and finally, we began the third task. We actually completed the third task. Um, a, an enormous maze grown in the heart of the Quidditch fields um, on, the, on the Hogwarts grounds. An enormous maze. Um... Harry and Cedric get to go in first because they're the leader in points, then Crumb, then uh, Fleur Delacour. Dark. Harry has had a chance to practice, and that's one, that's one of the things I really liked about last chapter was uh, talking about that feeling that you get um, when you are totally unprepared for something versus the feeling you get when you are prepared for something, or at least you've had time to make whatever preparations you feel are appropriate. There's something very powerful in that. Um, I think that's, that's a big part of the value of like studying for tests and such. Um, 
a huge part of that obviously is gaining the actual knowledge required, but I think part of it is also just walking into it with the confidence <laughs> and the low blood pressure associated with uh, having prepared. They go through the the, uh, the third test. There are a number of different challenges, including you know uh, weird gold mist that turns Harry's world upside down in a very literal way. Um, there's a fake Dementor. There's a, uh, a Sphinx who asks a riddle. Um, the major issues within the the um, the maze, however, are one: Victor Crumb attacks Cedric Diggory um, with the Cruciatus Curse. Now, again, this is one of the unforgivable curses. This is one of those things that will, as Harry notes, uh, earn him a life sentence in Azkaban. Harry thinks he can't possibly want the cup that badly. Um, additionally, uh, it sounds like Fleur is out. We, we heard a scream from her uh, early in the chapter. Um, we didn't see any red sparks, though, so we're not entirely sure what's happened there. Um, but at the very end, Harry catches sight of the cup. He's running towards it, and then... Cedric Diggory bursts out of a passageway next to him, and, and he's, they're both making their way towards it when Cedric Diggory is attacked by a spider. Harry warns Cedric just in time. They end up having to fight the spider together, and Harry is injured. Cedric's way is clear to get to the... the, the did I call it the Quidditch World Cup just now? I didn't mean to. The Triwizard Cup. Um, Harry's way is clear to the Triwizard... Uh, Cedric's way is clear to the Triwizard Cup. He could go for it and get it easily. But he says no. He insists that because of the help that Harry gave him, um, Cedric wants Harry to go first. Uh, Cedric wants Harry to win. He feels that's appropriate. Um, he's being he's being pretty noble here. Uh, Harry refuses and says they should go together. And upon grasping it in triumph, they realize this is a port key and they are whisked off to a location as of yet unknown. And that's where we're at. Let's get on to the next chapter, shall we? Ashlyn's. Ashlyn says, I'm building a library in Sims right now. I thought it seemed fitting. You should you should send me a screen cap when you're finished with your library, and I'll use it as the background for one of the chapters, uh, for like the library background. <laughs> this here being the library. Okay, Emily, have a great night. Thanks for coming. All right, our final chapter. There is only one scene in this chapter. I think it's a slightly longer than average scene, but again, this this whole chapter is only about seven pages long. So. Ash, how dare you? Turn up your screen brightness for this one. It's a dark picture. Chapter 32 Flesh, Blood, and Bone. Harry felt his feet slam into the ground. His injured leg gave way and he fell forward. His hand let go of the Triwizard Cup at last. He raised his head. Where are we? He said. Cedric shook his head. He got up, pulled Harry to his feet, and they looked around. 
They had left the Hogwarts grounds completely. They had obviously traveled miles, perhaps hundreds of miles, for even the mountains surrounding the castle were gone. They were standing instead in a dark and overgrown graveyard. The black outline of a small church was visible beyond a large yew tree just to their right. A hill rose above them to their left. Harry could just make out the outline of a fine old house on the hillside. Cedric looked down at the Triwizard Cup and then up at Harry. Did anyone tell you the cup was a portkey? He asked. Nope, said Harry. He was looking around at the graveyard. It was completely silent and slightly eerie. Is this supposed to be part of the task? I don't know, said Cedric. He sounded slightly nervous. Wands out, do you reckon? Yeah, said Harry, glad that Cedric had made the suggestion rather than him. They pulled out their wands. Harry kept looking around him. He had, yet again, the strange feeling that they were being watched. Someone's coming, he said suddenly. Squinting tensely through the darkness, they watched the figure drawing nearer, walking steadily toward them between the graves. Harry couldn't make out the face, but from the way it was walking and holding its arms, he could tell it was carrying something. Whatever it was, he was short, and wearing a hooded cloak pulled up over his head to obscure his face. And, several paces nearer, the gap closing between them all the time, Harry saw that the thing in the person's arms looked like a baby. Or was it merely a bundle of robes? Harry lowered his wand slightly and glanced sideways at Cedric. Cedric shot him a quizzical look. They both turned back to watch the approaching figure. It stopped beside a towering marble headstone, only six feet from them. For a second, Harry and Cedric and the short figure simply looked at one another. And then, without warning, Harry's scar exploded with pain. It was agony such as he had never felt in all his life. His wand slipped from his fingers, and he put his hand over his face. His knees buckled. He was on the ground, and he could see nothing at all. His head was about to split open. From far away, above his head, he heard a high, cold voice say, Kill the spare! A swishing noise and a second voice, which screeched the words into the night. Avada Kedavra! A blast of green light blazed through Harry's eyelids, and he heard something heavy fall to the ground beside him. The pain in his scar reached such a pitch that he retched, and then it diminished. Terrified of what he was about to see, he opened his stinging eyes. Cedric was lying spread-eagle on the ground beside him. He was dead. For a second that contained an eternity, Harry stared into Cedric's face, at his open gray eyes, blank and expressionless as the windows of a deserted house, at his half-open mouth, which looked slightly surprised. And then, before Harry's mind had accepted what he was seeing, before he could feel anything but numb disbelief, he felt himself being pulled to his feet. The short man in the cloak had put down his bundle 
lit his wand, and was dragging Harry toward the marble headstone. Harry saw the name flickering on it in the wand light before he was forced around and slammed against it. Tom Riddle. The cloaked man was now conjuring tight cords around Harry, tying him from neck to ankles to the headstone. Harry could hear shallow, fast breathing from the depths of the hood. He struggled, and the man hit him. Hit him with a hand that had a finger missing. And Harry realized who was under the hood. It was Wormtail. You! He gasped, but Wormtail, who had finished conjuring the ropes, did not reply. He was busy checking the tightness of the cords, his fingers trembling uncontrollably, fumbling over the knots. Once sure that Harry was bound so tightly to the headstone he couldn't move an inch, Wormtail drew a length of some black material from the inside of his cloak and stuffed it roughly into Harry's mouth. Then, without a word, he turned from Harry and hurried away. Harry couldn't make a sound. Nor could he see where Wormtail had gone. He couldn't turn his head to see beyond the headstone. He could see only what was right in front of him. Cedric's body was lying some twenty feet away. Some way behind him, glinting in the starlight, lay the Triwizard Cup. Harry's wand was on the ground at Cedric's feet. The bundle of robes that Harry had thought was a baby was close by. At the foot of the grave, it seemed to be stirring fretfully. Harry watched it, and his scar seared with pain again, and he suddenly knew that he didn't want to see what was in those robes. He didn't want that bundle opened. He could hear noises at his feet. He looked down and saw a gigantic snake slithering through the grass, circling the headstone where he was tied. Wormtail's fast, wheezy breathing was growing louder again. It sounded as though he were forcing something heavy across the ground. Then he came back within Harry's range of vision, and Harry saw him pushing a stone cauldron to the foot of the grave. It was full of what seemed to be water. Harry could hear it slopping around, and it was larger than any cauldron Harry had ever used. A great stone belly large enough for a full-grown man to sit in. The thing inside the bundle of robes on the ground was stirring more persistently, as though it was trying to free itself. Now Wormtail was busying himself at the bottom of the cauldron with a wand. Suddenly there were crackling flames beneath it. The large snake slithered away into the darkness. The liquid in the cauldron seemed to heat very fast. The surface began not only to bubble, but also to send out fiery sparks, as though it were on fire. Steam was thickening, blurring the outline of Wormtail tending the fire. The movements beneath the robes became more agitated and Harry heard the high, cold voice again. Hurry! The whole surface of the water was alight with sparks now. It might have been encrusted with diamonds. It is ready, Master. Now! said the cold voice. Wormtail pulled open the robes on the ground, revealing what was inside them and Harry let out a yell that was strangled in the wad of material blocking his mouth. It was as though Wormtail had flipped over a stone and revealed something slimy, ugly, and blind, but worse. A hundred times worse. The thing Wormtail had been carrying had the shape of a crouched human child. 
except that Harry had never seen anything less like a child. It was hairless and scaly-looking, a dark, raw, reddish-black. Its arms and legs were thin and feeble, and its face... No child alive ever had a face like that, flat and snake-like, with gleaming red eyes. The thing seemed almost helpless. It raised its thin arms, put them around Wormtail's neck, and Wormtail lifted it. As he did so, his hood fell back, and Harry saw the look of revulsion on Wormtail's weak, pale face in the firelight as he carried the creature to the rim of the cauldron. For one moment, Harry saw the evil, flat face illuminated in the sparks dancing on the surface of the potion, and then Wormtail lowered the creature into the cauldron. There was a hiss, and it vanished below the surface. Harry heard its frail body hit the bottom with a soft thud. Let it drown, Harry thought, his scar burning almost past endurance. Please, let it drown. Wormtail was speaking. His voice shook. He seemed frightened beyond his wits. He raised his wand, closed his eyes, and spoke to the knight. Bone of the father, unknowingly given, you will renew your son. The surface of the grave at Harry's feet cracked. Horrified, Harry watched as a fine trickle of dust rose into the air at Wormtail's command and fell softly into the cauldron. The diamond surface of the The diamond surface of the water broke and hissed. It sent sparks in all directions and turned a vivid, poisonous looking blue. And now Wormtail was whimpering. He pulled a long, thin, shining silver dagger from inside his rope. His voice broke into petrified sobs. Flesh of the servant, willingly given, you will revive your master. He stretched his right hand out in front of him, the hand with the missing finger. He gripped the dagger very tightly in his left hand and swung it upward. Harry realized what Wormtail was about to do a second before it happened. He closed his eyes as tightly as he could, but he could not block the scream that pierced the night. That went through Harry as though he had been stabbed with the dagger, too. He heard something fall to the ground, heard Wormtail's anguished panting, then a sickening splash as something was dropped into the cauldron. Harry couldn't stand to look but the potion had turned a burning red. The light of it shone through Harry's closed eyelids. Wormtail was gasping and moaning with agony. Not until Harry felt Wormtail's anguished breath on his face did he realize that Wormtail was right in front of him. Blood of the enemy, forcibly taken, you will resurrect your foe. Harry could do nothing to prevent it. He was tied too tightly. Squinting down, struggling hopelessly at the ropes binding him, he saw the shining silver dagger shaking in Wormtail's remaining hand. He felt its point penetrate the crook of his right arm and blood seeping down the sleeve of his torn robes. Wormtail, still panting with pain, fumbled in his pocket for a glass vial. 
and held it to Harry's cut so that a dribble of blood fell into it. He staggered back to the cauldron with Harry's blood. He poured it inside. The liquid within turned instantly a blinding white. Wormtail, his job done, dropped to his knees beside the cauldron, then slumped sideways and lay on the ground, cradling the bleeding stump of his arm, gasping and sobbing. The cauldron was simmering sending its diamond sparks in all directions, so blindingly bright that it turned all else to velvety blackness. Nothing happened. Let it have drowned, Harry thought. Let it have gone wrong. And then, suddenly, the sparks emanating from the cauldron were extinguished. A surge of white steam billowed thickly from the cauldron instead, obliterating everything in front of Harry, so that he couldn't see Wormtail or Cedric or anything but vapor hanging in the air. It's gone wrong, he thought. It's drowned. Please, please let it be dead. But then, through the mist in front of him, he saw with an icy surge of terror the dark outline of a man, tall and skeletally thin, rising slowly from inside the cauldron. Robe me, said the high, cold voice from behind the steam, and Wormtail, sobbing and moaning, still cradling his mutilated arm, scrambled to pick up the black robes from the ground got to his feet, reached up, and pulled them one-handed over his master's head. The thin man stepped out of the cauldron, staring at Harry, and Harry stared back into the face that had haunted his nightmares for three years. Whiter than a skull, with wide, livid, scarlet no wide, livid, scarlet eyes and a nose that was flat like a snake, with slits for nostrils. Lord Voldemort had risen again. And that is the end of our second chapter. That was a good time. I enjoyed that. I enjoy getting to, like, actually play into uh, the, the tension of a scene. Or, you know, whatever, whatever emotion they're trying to convey, but... That was a fun one. That was good. This, this, I, I cannot be thankful enough for this microphone. It's, it has allowed me to really do some fun stuff with vocal control I've never been able to do before. So, Cassidy, thank you very much. And, of course, uh, Rachel, thank you for being such a longtime fan. Thank you for helping me uh, keep it in my heart enough to get it actually started. Um, at this point, uh, over a year and a half ago. Thank you so much. Nate? Thank you for the uh, the <laughs> the secondhand laptop that made this technologically possible, um, and for everyone who watches and uh, talks in chat, uh, Ashlyn, General, uh, Ashling, Ducks Infinity, Marie, those are the ones I see from right here. But um, Luke, thank you as well. Thank you for listening. And Luke has also been a longtime fan. He was one of the people who watched, one of the first people who I didn't know personally who watched regularly and had anything good to say about the thing. So thank you very much.
Ashling said, or Ash, excuse me, Ash says, bows head, my poor Hufflepuff brother. Yeah. It's, it's hard that, that, that death, um, for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which for me, because we just get to see him as an ally just for this long, just, you know, this chapter and, uh, the last where he really, you know, he, he not only helps Harry with a task out of a sense of obligation, you know, as he did before, um, you know, he had a sense that he sort of needed to even the score. Um, but this time, you know, his, even his father had bad things to say and Cedric by, by whatever rights are granted to you by being misrepresented, uh, which I don't think are actual rights, but, you know, uh, Cedric certainly could have felt the exact same way that Cedric's father did, which is to say that, you know, Rita Skeeter put out this article that said, Harry's the only, you know, Harry's the only Hogwarts champion in the runnings. And that's simply not true. Cedric could have gone that route, but instead he defends Harry, even to his own father, which I mean, for, for some people that's incredibly difficult. I imagine with a father like Amos Diggory, who seems like he is, um, he seems very proud of his son's very masculine accomplishments. And, you know, that can go a lot of different ways. Um, but I imagine that uh, Cedric standing up to his father is not a small thing. Again, again, the small things that contribute to the greater whole, right? Marie says, I remember as a kid, this chapter was really scary to me. It's, yeah, it's designed to be that way and it is executed well. Um, the, the description, there's a, uh, there's a, a concept in writing, um, well, I mean, it's a, as obvious, it's a concept in a lot of things, but rhythm, um, it's something that is a concept in writing that's often overlooked in writing specifically. Um, when you think about poetry or you think about music, obviously it becomes much more uh, pressing, but there's a sense of, of rhythm and repetition in this chapter that really helps to contribute to... I don't, do you guys like talking about this stuff? I think we should. Um, but there's that, that, that rhythm um, and the expectation that you know... Um, part of what is coming next. There's the chapter is called, it's called flesh, blood, and bone. And we see, we see the bone of the father. We see it taken, you know, we can see it's part of an incantation. We see that things are being taken. You know, there, there are, there are events happening and we know, you know, based on the chapter title and based on uh, everything that, that worm tongue, worm tongue, Wormtail says, excuse me, got uh, Lord of the Rings on the brain. Uh, everything that Wormtail says, we can feel something coming. We don't know what it is necessarily, but we understand the rhythm of he's going to he's going to say part of an incantation and then something bad is going to happen and the situation is going to get worse. And that's intentional. It brings on that feeling of slowly approaching doom and another thing which is important in uh in writing uh, i think especially in tv um tv and or just f uh sort of film screen stuff in general but not showing your horrific creature until the last moment because once you see it it's you've got a full picture of it and there is something very very frightening about the unknown in my own personal read through of this uh 
you guys, I think you guys are aware. Um, I'm a couple of books ahead of you guys, but I read all of this stuff out loud before it ever goes onto the channel, but I'm in book seven right now. And this is something that will come up again. Um, this sense of the unknown being a more effective fear, even than playing your hand. Uh, It's a well-crafted chapter, and as such, it's not surprising that Marie was scared of this as a kid. <laughs> I, I didn't read this as a kid, so I didn't experience that same uh, deep fear, but I could certainly sense the anticipation, the suspense, the anxiety. That was probably what it was for me more. It was the anxiety of this thing coming closer and closer and not having uh, a chance to get away. Well-crafted stuff. General says, I'll probably always be mourning Cedric. He and Hufflepuff deserved better. I know what you mean. Yeah. I think a lot of the things that have happened after Harry Potter and a lot of the things that um, fans of the series have done for the, especially for the understanding of the four houses, um, has been really positive. I think because one must have antagonist this is something I've, I've 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 realized fairly recently over the past uh two years essentially um in order to tell stories about good defeating evil you must portray evil this is something i thought about when i was first coming out here uh you know as a as a performer like uh i've got family who who knows how they would feel about me playing some really dastardly characters but in order for uh, in order to tell stories about good versus evil, you must portray evil. Um, and in order to uh, portray stories about overcoming antagonists, even if it's not you know full-on evil, you have to have these antagonists. And in this case, they did happen to be Slytherin, um, uh, as far as the ones that were you know within the school. Um, you know, uh, Malfoy. I don't know what's going on with my camera right now, but just assume that. It, boy, that is very Avada Kedavra, isn't it? It's got a greenish tinge to it. That's horrifying. <laughs> That's horrifying after what we're reading right now. Doesn't it have a weird... It's got a very... Let me... Let me you know what? No. For, no, this is the moment. If there was any moment for this kind of drama, this is the moment for it. Avada Kedavra. Um, but yeah, in order, in order to, to have Harry overcome antagonists, we needed antagonists. And uh, um, some of those... A lot of those came in the form of... Uh, Slytherins, and I think Slytherins overall have been kind of uh, downtrodden because of that. Like I said, I think the community has done a good job of understanding the, the, let's see, the true qualities of the four houses and not assessing uh, Slytherins by Draco Malfoy and his cronies, but by the self-sufficient qualities of a Slytherin. There are my thoughts on the matter. It's getting crazy in the background, right? Mikhail says, give me the nerdy literature talk. 
You betcha. We're going to go into even more nerdy literature talk with the new Tuesday streams. Um, I recognize this isn't going to be everybody's bag, uh, but uh, on Tuesdays, I'm doing Sidecar Classics. Uh, that's what I'm calling it tentatively right now, but I'm going to be going through the stuff that if any of y'all are in high school or about to be, this is kind of the stuff I'm going to be going through. Um, my intent is to make it much more like a radio play and really give you guys as much as I possibly can. I want to throw as much as I can at you guys to help you uh, engage with this stuff because I think it's it's a little bit like learning to read for the first time, to be honest. Uh, I was really resistant to learning to read and one of the things that inspired me to do this was this thing called Goma Tapes, um, which Goma, this is what we call our grandmother uh, on one side of our family here. Uh, Goma would read on cassette tapes uh, different books like uh, Swiss Family Robinson and all sorts of um, uh, Dr. Doolittle was a huge one for me. Um, and what it did was it helped me unlock that that part of my brain and just realize that, okay, if I can just get over this bump of learning how to read, there's some great stuff beyond that little speed bump. If I can just, if I can leap this fence, if I can leap this fence, what's over there? The grass really is greener over on that other, on that other side. And so I want to... I want to try and do something like that for uh, for some of the classic literature. Uh, I'm starting with Great Gatsby, um, but I think uh, any way that I can help you guys to connect with that in a, a sort of a visceral um, or uh, intensive way, uh, I would love to. I would love to be able to do that. So Tuesdays. Um, I don't know what time of day right now. It's going to be earlier in the day certainly than we're doing these right now. Um, but uh, go ahead and check that out. Um, you can jump into the Discord if you like. I believe that is the one thing that's currently in the description right now. Um, but uh, I will I will fill out that description later. But uh, yeah, links in the description for the Discord if you want to jump in there. I tend to hang out in there after uh, I have to shut down the stream, which will be soon. I mean, we're at we're at uh, two. Where are we at? How how long have we can, we've been going so far? Over two and a half hours, uh, on like a slightly longer than average chapter and an incredibly short chapter. We've been going for two and a half hours, which might be a record. Of course, discounting the one where I accidentally left the stream on for like six hours over the course of one night. We don't talk about that night. <laughs> I'm I'm still getting used to some new stuff. All right. I hope everyone has an excellent week. An excellent week. Um, I will see you possibly on Tuesday. Otherwise, uh, if you are not feeling that one, um, go ahead and uh, I will see you on next Thursday. And we will be back for Harry Potter streams as usual. Um, again, I really would advise you to at least check out um, the uh, the classic stream. I think it's going to be really interesting. Um, I've got a, a soundboard I've been working on. Um, so I've, I'm going to have different sound effects and and uh, music laced in through there so that you can really get a feel for some of this classic stuff. Yeah, we don't talk, Michaela, we don't talk about it. First rule of the six-hour stream is we don't talk about the six-hour stream. <laughs> I've always wanted to be able to do long, long streams of this, but I, I think my brain would melt, you know? It's not quite like... Um, 
I don't know, maybe maybe it would be different for you guys, but you guys have likely noticed at the end of a couple of long chapters, my mouth gets fatigued, essentially, and my brain has a hard time keeping my words straight. I don't have any kind of uh, dyslexia or anything, but I do start to lose track of things. Um, and boy, especially if I've, if I've got to deal with thinking Mr. Crouch for a chapter, that one takes out of my voice quick. Have a fantastic week. I'll talk to y'all later.